Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Hi, everybody. I am very happy to have Douglas Valentine with us this week. If you're not acquainted with his work, you really need to be. Uh, He's quite prolific, and he's going to help us really contextualize the war on drugs. So Doug can help us get the long view of what's been going on. So Doug, by way of introduction, do you want to tell folks about yourself? Okay, um, I wrote my first book when I was in my early 30s about my father, who had been, uh, who was a World War II veteran. And after his second open heart surgery when he was 55, he had one previously when he was 45, um, he was having terrible nightmares and uh, they sent him to the hospital psychiatrist. And it turned out that he had been a prisoner of war in World War II, and he had never told anybody about it. Wow. And he had been in a prison camp uh, where the, the inmates had actually mutinied against their own leaders. Okay, the leaders had made a deal with the Japanese, and things got um, intolerable. And um, so there was a camp mutiny, and when the camp was uh, liberated, my father was sworn to secrecy, made the, sign a non-disclosure statement, you know, like the kind that Trump makes his girlfriend sign. And, and uh, you know, on pain of, uh, pain of being brought up on charges of, you know, homicide and mutiny, he kept this a secret all his life. And it resulted in terrible PTSD and all sorts of illness. And so uh, when he told me that, about what really happened to him, him and I were, be, were able to start to heal together, okay? He confessed that all the family's dysfunction was the result of him having the PTSD from never being able to uh, speak honestly about what had happened to him. I'm sure a lot of people of your, your, your um, the people you deal with understand what it's like to carry a, a heavy secret around and how it affects people around you and and, um, you know, leads to all sorts of other problems. Anyway, so uh, that book came out with success. And, um, uh, and my father, you know, my father and I were able to heal and, uh, to some extent. You can't ever get over all the, all the, you know, all the bad stuff that happened, but you can, you know, agree to move on. Then I wrote, a, I was curious, being 70 years old, if things like what happened to my father happened in World War II. I mean, in the Vietnam War. And I was led to um, uh, the CIA's Phoenix program, uh, in which guys who had been part of, soldiers who were part of the Phoenix program were made to do reprehensible things. Um, uh, They attacked civilians in South Vietnam who were members of the Communist Party or their sympathizers. And they would assassinate them and and, uh, kidnap them and put them into a terrible interrogation centers. These people were deemed to have no rights. 
Anyway, these soldiers would come home and they couldn't talk about that. So I went and I spoke to as many of these guys as I could, including the CIA officers who actually put this, this program together. And it was sort of the same thing all over again on a vaster scale. Um, because I my experience with my father, people would open up to me because I knew what it was like for, for soldiers and spies to carry secrets around. So I was able to write a kind of a blockbuster book called The Phoenix Program, which came out in 1990. And except that it, it revealed a lot of CIA secrets, so it didn't get a lot of airtime. Not until the internet came out and, and didn't have to worry about uh, relying on the mainstream press. So, so that was kind of, um, uh, you know, one, a big issue for me, the Vietnam War. Then the next subject I wanted to deal with was the war on drugs, which for my generation, there were three big subjects. There was the Vietnam War, there was the war on drugs, and there's race, civil rights. And, and we, as a person who's 70 and grew up in the 50s and 60s, I felt that these were the things I should be a writer, and uh, that as a writer I should write about those three subjects. So my next two books were about the war on drugs. The book I'll be talking to you about today is called The Strength of the Wolf. And that came out in, 19, uh, in, in 2004. Took many years to research it. And um, uh, it is about what was called the uh, Bureau of Narcotics, which was uh, formally created in 1930 and existed until 1968. Just for clarification, the Bureau of Narcotics is the FBN? Yes, yeah. Uh, it was actually called itself the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Okay. So and that's the FBN. And um, it, there was, prior to the FBN being um, uh, created by Congress in 1930, drug law and federal drug law enforcement was part of the um, uh, prohibition unit. And, and Treasury Department, okay, and uh, um, it, it, there was uh, alcohol prohibition unit, and when this was all created by the federal government, um, as a result of what was called the Harrison Narcotic Act in 1914, they put it in the Treasury Department because at the time, 1915, 1916, it was uh, not to be a revenue the uh, raising act and, and, and a unit that that would like regulate narcotics and and make sure that uh, uh, people were paying import tax on, on <laughs> narcotics that they brought into the country and uh, but what happened quickly very soon was that uh, forces that were in the United States working you know sort of behind the scenes decided that it should not be a public health revenue issue, that it should be a law enforcement issue. And in 1921, the Supreme Court decided that um, uh, uh, physicians could no longer prescribe narcotics to addicts. And addiction in itself was criminalized at that point. And a whole new, um, you know, I mean, obviously, Alcohol was prohibited at that time. Prohibition um, Act was, I think, 1919. So um, now you have uh, prohibition against alcohol and narcotics, and these things are criminalized, and they're not made um, uh, uh, as, you know, they were originally conceived as public health issues. So um, just to wrap up a little bit left, I'll come back and I'll address all this uh, more thoroughly. But um, uh, 
then I, uh, when that book was came out in 20, uh, 2004, then I, uh, I began working on another book called The Strength of the Pack, which was the sequel to The Strength of the Wolf, and it de dealt with uh, drug law enforcement from 1968, when the Federal Bureau of um, Narcotics went out of existence and was reformed within the Justice Department, first as the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and then as the DEA in 1973. And that book explains um, the political and espionage and, 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 the, uh, and, and really the domineering, uh, dominant personalities of the war on drug up, up until around 2000. So the, the, the interesting part is when all of this is uh, originally the myths about drug addiction are originally created and which we still live with today. And everything that the, the myths that the government and industry and, and the culture feeds off of, which you know, largely centers on this idea that, that um, uh, addiction is crime and not a health issue, okay? So how did that happen? All right, so, so go back in time to the beginning of time, which is um, uh, uh, the opium wars in China in the middle of the 19th century. The first one I think is uh, 1848, and the next one I think is uh, 1862. I could be wrong. Uh, I'm talking off the top of my head, and I, I don't remember, might not remember, but it's around that time. And what it was is that um, uh, Great Britain was trying to colonize China at that particular point. And uh, it wanted to, under the, the, the aegis of free trade, it felt that it had the right to uh, import opium from India, which was already a full-fledged colony, into China. And the Chinese in the uh, middle of the 19th century refused. They did not want tons of, of opium coming in and affecting the population. And so the British raged a war, two wars against China for the right to um, uh, export opium from India into China, which they used as a, um, to trade for tea. <laughs> and and um, they would bring the tea, the, the merchants would push, uh, actually set up, you know, had their, their contacts in China. The people who were collaborating with them, the merchants who, who, who agreed to go along with this, you know, create a network of opium dens throughout um, China. And this all, this all evolves through the uh, rest of the 19th century. Okay, so understand that by the beginning of the 20th century, there are some estimated, and I don't know how the estimates were arrived at, but 7, 7 million heroin and morphine addicts in China and about 70 million opium addicts. And the opium addiction and problem was spreading across uh, the Far East. Okay, now, at the beginning of the 20th century, now the United States starts to get involved, okay? Um, the Civil War is over, and um, there's no more territory to conquer on the continental, on the continent. So uh, people are, the Americans are looking for, uh, uh, to become a colonial empire themselves. And they have waged the Spanish-American War. And as a result, 
uh, the uh, United States acquires the Philippines as a colony in the early 20th century. And Americans start populating uh, the Philippines and um, they open businesses there. Um, and um, American doctors go to the Philippines to treat the colonizers, okay? And at this time, medicine is making huge leaps in, and they understand sanitation, they understand um, uh, germs, they, you know, it's really a, a, as a result of the Industrial Revolution, uh, technology is advancing, the, you know, medical equipment is advancing, and the American doctors who are there are absolutely alarmed by the extent of, of opium addiction, not just in the Philippines, but in China. And um, uh, the fact that, that uh, one's prohibition, opium and narcotic drug prohibition is uh, implemented in the United States, some of this, a great deal of this excess opium from the Far East starts coming back to the United States. So um, uh, this is when this period in the early um, 20th century is when a lot of forces combine together, okay? Um, uh, for uh, reasons of public health, this one particular doctor named Hamilton Wright, confers with Teddy Roosevelt, who is then the president. And he says, you know, we have to do something to prevent all these uh, narcotic drugs from, uh, you know, reaching the United States and, and creating an epidemic of addiction here. And so uh, Roosevelt and his people are the ones who first create the F Pure Food and Drug Act, hmm. okay, which starts regulating um, uh, the kind of... Um, uh, uh, vegetables and meats and everything that are being imported into the United States, as well as uh, regulating the production of food stuff in the United States. And also as a result of the burgeoning pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry, regulating the kinds of medicines that are being produced and making sure that they're, they're um, uh, you know, not Mother McCree's goose grease you know, and 35% and cocaine and 35% opium, you know, that they're trying to make sure that they are scientifically sound. So, so there's a few, first there's a uh, pure food and drug act, and that, that creates um, um, the, a particular, I think, department in the federal government which oversees it, okay? And it's going to do the same thing that um, later on the Treasury Department does with narcotics specifically, it regulates, it creates uh, uh, legislation where, where uh, uh, companies have to report to the government, whatever this government agency is, on the uh, number of foodstuffs they make, the ingredients they put in it, you know, you start having labels and stuff like that on bottles. And um, then, then uh, obviously, uh, uh, the uh, progressive reformists in the country who are alarmed that, uh, you know, women get the right to vote, uh, very progressive movement, um, uh, alarmed that the crime that results from alcohol abuse and then the crime of, uh, and, and then, um, which results in prohibition, right? Because uh, uh, women are, are tired of husbands beat, getting drunk and beating them up. There's a uh, science for uh, links 
uh, crime to alcohol, okay? Uh, so uh, along with that, the forces all combine and they create the Hamilton, uh, the Harrison Narcotic Act, which is late 1914 goes into effect. And like I said earlier, by 1920, 1921, um, uh, narcotics are now, and addiction in particular is a crime. It becomes a law enforcement matter. And, and that's when Lucky Luciano, Arnold Rothstein, Meyer Lansky, all the, all the gangsters who create actual organized crime in the United States start entering their heyday. Okay. There is a huge demand for booze. And, and um, which is re really where the organized crime aspect of this, uh, where, where organized crime becomes the purveyor of vice, of everything that's now illegal, um, uh, be it alcohol and then later drugs, the, the um, uh, organized crime people who are at the time largely Jewish and Italian connect with uh, the Chinese traffickers. And, and uh, a guy like Arnold Rothstein, who lives in New York City, and, and he's called the brain, and he's the first guy to organize crime, uh, starts importing uh, uh, booze from Europe and uh, shipping it through Canada. He has uh, smugglers who, who are really, really, you know, uh, good at smuggling booze. They actually create their own little navies to bring the boats, you know, bring the booze in, and they have uh, set up distribution networks around the country, uh, out of Canada, out of Mexico, through the Caribbean, all of these places. It's still legal to get, you know, to drink. So you can actually smuggle booze from Canada with no problem. You, can, you know, you don't even have to go to Europe, but they have routes set up. And because these routes are in place, now it's easy enough to bring, along with the booze, to bring the drugs in at the same time. So, so the routes that Rothstein and um, the early Italian mafia, Sicilian mafia, set up to bring booze into the country, they also used to bring in um, heroin and morphine and opium because there's really tremendous profits to be made from much, you know, so like uh, five pounds of, of um, 100 pounds of, of heroin reaps a hell of a lot bigger profit than, you know, a truckload of booze. So it really, it's, it's very cost effective. And, and they actually, and they start, um, you know, the gang wars that are famous in the 1920s for control of organized crime. And eventually around 1930, at the same time that the Bureau of Narcotics is being formed, uh, Luciano, and Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky join forces. They unite the Italian mafia and the Jewish drug trafficking uh, uh, gangs together, and uh, they they kill Rothstein and they and they take over his empire and they incorporate all of organized crime and now uh, across the United States and they have a franchise. They have a franchise. They set up uh, outposts in every state. You know, um, the distribution, uh, dis, uh, they have a national distribution network for narcotics and they have people running it in every state. And it's, they, they build it just like Ford Corporation. And now they have completely organized crime and it becomes really rampant around the country because you start thinking, and, and then I'll let you ask a question, 
is the problem one of supply or demand. And, 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 and so this brings, uh, you know, these two conflicting, all, all of a sudden it's, there's no longer considered a health issue. It's purely because organized crime is controlling it, considered to be a law enforcement issue. And, and, and the issue becomes, is it a problem of supply or a problem of demand? And a guy like William Burroughs, you know, who wrote Junkie, said it's totally a, 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 an issue of supply. If you keep pouring in enough drugs into the country, people get addicted. So the first cause, the first root cause that you have to understand, especially if you have access to illegal narcotics, is that you're not the cause of this. The cause of this is United States government policy. The first policy, which is to make it a law, uh, a, a law enforcement issue and not a public um, health issue, drives it into the, into the realm of the underworld, the criminal underworld. And then when the criminal underworld starts bringing in tons of drugs because it's profitable, people start getting addicted all over the country because these people, the, the mafia, the drug traffickers, are salesmen and they start selling drugs around the country just like just like anybody would sell pepsi or coke or or anything else and and so it's really totally a supply issue but the government has messed it up from the very beginning so so that's how uh starting in 1930 it starts becoming a, um an epidemic in the united states and then I, I thought you might want to ask me something about that because i can go into all of this and in greater detail. Yeah, well, I do have some questions. Um, do we know much about the demographic of drug users in the 20s and 30s in the United States, specifically well, sure. narcotics? Sure. Um, uh, obviously, um, uh, it, it's funny because it's like, I mean, it happens all across the country, but it happens in big cities and largely in urban areas, okay? This is where people are concentrated. New York City is the epicenter of drug addiction in the United States, even starting in the 1920s through the 1930s. This is where, where it's really concentrated. But in every city where there's a mafia and organized crime operating, then this is where it's concentrated, all right? Because again, demographically, they're concentrating on areas where there's um, concentration of population. And, and this is where it's easy enough to, um, to make a lot of money. And very early on, this is one of the things that, that organized crime is quite adept with, um, they start hiring policemen and politicians and kicking back a huge amount of the, uh, you know, a, a particular part of their profits back to the cops, just like cops were part of prohibition, alcohol pro prohibition. You know, I mean, if you, if you read the books, you know, the cops are helping the organized crime people unload the boats in Long Island. And, you know, and the customs people were being paid off by, by, the, by the bootleggers so that they could bring you know, the booze into the United States and that, you know, and the customs guy would get a couple of bottles of Johnny Walker Red, you know. Well, it's the same thing with narcotics. Uh, I talked, I interviewed 
you know, I started my research in the late 80s, early 90s, and I talked to narcotic, federal narcotic agents who were working in the 1930s and 40s. And I asked them about what it was like, you know. And the corruption is so rampant throughout law enforcement. I mean, one guy told me that in, when there was alcohol prohibition, that um, the federal narcotic agents would actually commandeer speakeasies like, like they were pirates boarding a ship. And they would, you know, like just um, take over the place and on the, on the threat of arresting everybody. And of course, cocaine was very popular then, you know, and, they, and, 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 the, and the agents themselves would just have a great good time in a speakeasy and nobody could kick them out and they would, you know, like say, you know, we'll play Sweet George Brown, man, you know, I mean, and they would be hobnobbing with the, the, the mafia bosses. In fact, when this guy, Arnold Rothstein was killed in late 1928 and they found his records, you know, I mean, he, he was living in a fancy hotel in New York City and they, they found his records they found out that the cousin, the nephew, excuse me, I mean, no, excuse me, the son-in-law, the guy who ran the, the Bureau of Narcotics at that time was a guy named Colonel Levi Nutt, who had been a customs officer for many years. And then he, when the, this prohibition unit, anti-narcotic prohibition unit was formed, he was put in charge of it. He was in charge of it up until 1928 when Rothstein was killed and his, his um, uh, accounting books were found and found out, they found out that Levi Nutt's son-in-law was doing all Rothstein's taxes. Okay. So the corruption was right up to the, to the top. There wasn't a narcotic agent in New York City who wasn't on Arnold Rothstein's payroll. And when Luciano and, and Lansky take over, they have the same relationship with the narcotic agents. Okay, and they and they pay off the big drink distributors, the guys who bring the drugs into the United States, and the ones who distribute it in the cities pay off the narcotic agents, which means starting in the 1920s and 30s, the Bureau of Narcotics and federal law enforcement and the state law enforcement and city law enforcement is focused entirely on the addict population, okay? Nobody knows how to make a conspiracy case in, 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 the, in the Bureau of Narcotics against these guys. They, they, they don't know how to, how to they, there's like 300 federal narcotic agents in the country and maybe three or four of them are posted overseas. So they don't have the manpower. And nobody knows how to make conspiracy, has any idea how to make conspiracy case on any of these guys. Okay. And there's no way to, you know, they're just hoping that they can catch the drugs when they come in through customs. And like I said, the customs guys are on the payroll too. So tons of drugs are coming into the country. And I remember one guy I talked with who became a federal narcotic agent in 1948, was assigned to Chicago, said there wasn't a drug deal that went down on the street that wasn't kicked back to the vice squad and up to the politicians. Not one. And, and, and this federal narcotic agent followed the chief of the, uh, the vice squad in his little area where he was working in Chicago, and the guy would just pick up bribes, you know, all day long, you know. And, 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 and so from the very beginning, 
federal narcotic and even uh, um, uh, city and state drug law enforcement focuses entirely on addicts. They have, like one guy told me who was a, um, a narcotic agent in, in New Orleans, which is a huge, has a huge, um, it's a, you know, it's a port city. So it has a big, a uh, lot of uh, um, narcotics coming into it. Um, and the mafia is very big there. Um, so so uh, he said uh, they had quotas to make a certain amount of, you know, the narcotic squad in New Orleans had a quota to make a certain amount of cases every month. And he said, so it was easy. We just went after the blacks. He said, um, uh, they have no money for a lawyer. So they have to rely on a public defender. You put them in jail. They're going through uh, um, cold turkey. If you offer them a couple of, that, you know, a little sniff of heroin, then they're going to become an informant for you because uh, rather than go to court because the all-white jury is going to convict them. Right. And, and we don't even have to try. And so now we go to an informant and he goes back and, and, and he makes more cases and we're able to meet our quotas. And it was the same thing with the federal narcotic agents. They would say and did that pattern replicate itself anywhere there was a black population? Oh, absolutely. Blacks are, are um, uh, blacks, Puerto Ricans, especially after uh, any, any, any despised minority um, becomes the focus of federal um, narcotic as well as state and local narcotic law enforcement. It allows the cops to make, meet their quotas that allows them to uh, keep track of how many addicts there are, and then they can report to Congress, and they can say, well, there's now so many addicts in New York City, there's so many addicts in, in, in Chicago, or in Los Angeles, or San Francisco, and, and they report on this to congressional uh, committees who are only concerned with maintaining Jim Crow in the South segregation in, 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 across the country. And so these, these statistics, which are compiled by, um, you know, the narcotic, uh, narcotic squads in the cities and, and the federal narcotic agents, just uh, reinforce the myths about narcotic and drug addiction in the United States, which perpetuate the need for uh, it to remain a law enforcement issue. And because these people are despised minorities, um, for example, I don't know if you know this, but the, the first hospital in Washington, D.C. that admitted blacks didn't start admitting them until 1915. You know, so these people can't get treatment anywhere. I mean, they go to a hospital and they say, no, you can't come in. You know, you have to have no health insurance or anything like this. So it perpetuates all the, um, uh, there was a woman who wrote a book about it, you know, a black woman, I can't remember, the new Jim Crow. Michelle Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, about how all this plays out in the, but, it, you know, it's also um, in 1936, as World War II is approaching, the guy who runs the um, Bureau of Narcotics, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, a guy named Harry Ansliger, all of a sudden cases, heroin cases, start dropping off because international um, um, shipping is slowing down because of uh, impending World War II. And um, it's going to, you know, I mean, eventually um, 
it pretty much stops altogether. You know, U-boats and submarines are out there, ship, you know, blowing up uh, uh, passenger ships. And then, you know, the war, when it ends, by the time it enters the war, there's very little uh, uh, heroin and morphine and, and even opium coming into the country. That, that, but in 1936, in order to maintain the illusions, the myths, uh, about uh, addiction in the United States and about the dangers of drugs, Anslinger lobbies Congress to create the first anti-marijuana drug laws, which which come into effect in 1937. Okay, and now all of a sudden you have uh, Negro jazz musicians seducing white women, you know, with with um, the the reefer madness, and there's this whole reefer madness campaign that starts across the, the country and in which you're told that if you smoke a joint, you're going to become a heroin addict, you know, and then your life is ruined forever. And more myths begin, uh, are, are propagated by the Bureau of Narcotics. And, and um, uh, actually, it's just, you know, a sleight of hand. It's a way for them, for, the, for these uh, narcotic squads and cities, for the federal narcotic agents, they create a, a, a bugaboo. They create a demon out of thin air, marijuana, which actually, you know, um, gets them through the World War II years. Yeah. They go all over the country they, and, you know, busting people for marijuana, you know, the, uh, um, uh, Mexicans, you know, the Mexicans become now the new, the new, uh, so tons of Mexico start coming across, the, you know, the southern border. So they bring customs into the fight against uh, marijuana, uh, you know, um, uh, the, start beefing up the southern border. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's totally racist, <laughs> you know, and it plays on white suburban fears of of being uh, contaminated it's the same thing that nixon did in 1969 when he when he um, had what was called operation intercept which closed the mexican border it's the same thing that trump is doing now you know with um uh, uh you know putting immigrants into detention and separating from their families it's pure racism it's pure mythology there's nothing based in in scientific fact about it and again it's political in nature because uh, the people who are, are behind the Jim Crow laws and behind segregation are using racial stereotypes and pinning them on the Democrats, Democratic cities. You know, just like Trump nowadays says that he has to go into liberal Democratic cities to squash crime because of the Black Lives Movement. It's the same. He's just reviving Trump. The same fears that white people have, which are all based on, on myths that are untrue, that, that you know, the, the Mexicans or the blacks or the, or the Muslims are going to come riding into their, you know, guns blazing into their suburban homes and, and take their daughters and, and, and their houses and, and everything they've ever earned, earned, you know? I mean, and it's just pure garbage. But these are the myths that are powerful enough in the minds of Americans and are exploited by uh, basically conservative Republican evangelical people in the Congress to, to maintain the kind of law enforcement um, solutions 
and continually beefing up law enforcement and directing them against the poorest, least defensible people in the world to satisfy the, the, the to ease the fears that they create in white suburban middle class minds. And this is how the whole thing unfolds. And, and um, you know, I mean, I go into it in, in detail in, in my books, you know, so uh, the, the, there's only, you know, I mean, um, it, it, it starts becoming a little more complicated after World War II. Right. I need a breather. So, so why don't you, if I'm not covering something that you want to know, or yeah. want me to continue after World War II and how we get to the point of, you know, to the Vietnam War, where, you know, by that point, heroin addiction reaches all-time highs in the country, I can explain that to you. Sorry. Yeah, I would like to get there. But to get there, I'd like to look at um, Chiang Kai-shek, and the KMT and him funding his outfit with opium and how that plays into those those World War II years. Yeah, sure. Well, this is the prelude to the CIA, okay? Uh, why we even really needed a CIA in this country, which, you know, comes about in 1948, but it goes back to... Um, World War II, uh, the predecessor organization to the CIA, which was the OSS, gets created in, in 1941, 1942. Prior to that, okay, um, the United States is, wants a piece of China, okay? It's, it's has, there's a faction in the United States which, um, wants to establish businesses around the world, okay, in industry. And China is this um, big potential market. If you can set up industries in China, um, you could have, uh, you know, just like Trump and holidays. Again, I mean, it hasn't changed, okay, in 100 years. Uh, if you can get a piece of China, you can more easily compete with the colonial powers that are already there, the British, the French, who are exploiting these people um, for cheap labor, plus there's a big market. So the United States wants to get its, its peace. And in 1925, 1930, 1926, 27, the United States throws its weight behind a, um, um, a general politician in uh, China named Chiang Kai-shek, okay, who creates the <clears throat> was a Kuomintang party, which is uh, um, his political party, and they are called the Chinese nationalists. Chiang Kai-shek himself converted to become a Methodist. So he's presentable to the United States people. And, and he's not a Buddhist, and he's not a communist. And, it, and, and the one thing that he is, is a big-time drug dealer. And the only way he can support his army to fight the burgeoning communist movement in China is through opium, selling opium, okay? And um, uh, so right away, starting in the early 1920s, the mid-1920s, and through the 1930s, the United States finds itself in the first of the um, uh, contradictory, contradictory uh, positions that it will have for the rest of its um, um, imperial existence, okay? In order to maintain a anti-communist ally in China, 
the United States has to tolerate his opium dealing. Okay, so now right away, that aspect of American foreign policy becomes super secret. Um, uh, there are council, the United States has military attaches in, um, in China at the time, and it has customs agents uh, in China at the time in the 1930s. And they are sending reports back to the guy who's the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger, okay? And Anslinger gets the reports and, and um, the military attache there was a guy named Stillwell, Joseph Stillwell. And you can read his reports that he's sending back to Anslinger through the 1930s in which he details Chiang Kai-shek's narcotic trafficking operations and, and the customs agents there are sending reports back to Harry Anslinger and they're detailing um, the entire network, uh, Kuomintang network. But at the same time, the Kuomintang starts fighting the Japanese. The Japanese invade China in, um, uh, you know, there's in, in around 1936, and there's, there's what's the famous rape of Nanking in 1938, and the Japanese, so they'll uh, start taking over, they take over Shanghai. Uh, there's, you know, uh, the war is starting to brew. I mean, big time. And the only way that Chiang Kai-shek can create an air force, which is sold to him by the guy who, who later creates Pan Am, okay? The only way, Curtis Wright, the only way he can buy an air force is with opium profits, okay? Otherwise he doesn't have the money. And so in order to create an army and an air force in, in China that's loyal to the United States, fighting the communists on the one hand, and fighting the Japanese on the other is to, if the United States to national security establishment, the military establishment, the State Department to allow these people to traffic narcotics, even though a lot of these narcotics are coming back to the United States. And there's a, you know, there's a, there's a one case after another, okay? And a lot of the drugs are coming through the Chinese consulate in, in San Francisco, okay, which is now because it's staffed by, you know, it's staffed by our allies. It's not staffed by the Chinese communists, you know, or some, some crazy warlord. It's staffed by Kuomintang people who have a connection to what's called the Hipseng Tong, which is the Chinese uh, version of the mafia in the United States, the Hipseng Tong. It's a, it's a creation of the, and aligned with the Kuomintang party. And I think it was 1929, there's a very famous case where the wife of the, con the guy who runs the Chinese consulate is arrested by U.S. Customs with 2,000 2, pounds of heroin and morphine and opium coming in on a ship. And, and um, you know, it's a scandal. And, and uh, uh, what's Anslinger going to do? And, and, and they kick it up to um, the Treasury Secretary, uh, who's a guy named Andrew Mellon, and the, uh, the uh, Secretary of State, a guy named Stimson, and they cover up the whole thing and they send, the, they, they send these people, um, the, the wife and the consulate guy, and their connections all across the country back to, back to, to, to China. You know, no charges brought because you can't have these things known. So all of a sudden now you start developing with the United States government an individualized secret service, which has as its reason for being covering up of the United of, of, of people 
United States allies around the world who are trafficking narcotics in order to um, uh, create political allies in these countries. There's another very famous case in 1937 called the Taka case, T-A-C-A. It's an airline that runs out of um, uh, Central American countries and it delivers into, um, it flies into New Orleans, okay? And uh, some federal narcotic agent <laughs> arrests a couple of Italian oystermen one day, you know, bringing some, bringing some morphine and heroin from a, from a ship into New Orleans. And it leads back to this, air, this airline, the Taka airline, which is flying out of Honduras. And, it's, and, and, and it turns out, you know, I mean, tons of drugs. And just like with this case with the, um, you know, the Chinese, this Taka case is, you know, Anslinger and his, his trusted associates and the, the, the trusted people in customs and the State Department take over the case and everybody gets away because the United States is uh, uh, using the, the profits to, to put a, a American-friendly government in Honduras. You know, so so the cases start. There's more and more cases all the time. They're into Latin America now. They're all over the Far East. And by the time uh, World War II, the United States enters World War II, and the United States creates it creates this um, uh, Office of Strategic Services, which is a civilian organization which operates outside of of um, uh, the, right, the, the military, the United States military, but it works with them. And it operates outside of the um, uh, State Department. The people who are actually asked to form this OSS by a guy named William Donovan are Harry Anslinger in the Bureau of Narcotics. They asked to do it? Yes, yes. They, they, a guy named, from 1936 to 1941, the guy who runs the Bureau of Narcotics in New York City is a guy named Garland Williams, okay? Garland Williams is asked by Anslinger. Anslinger and William Donovan are the guys who basically form the OSS. And they have Garland Williams go to London, where he gets from the British, which, has, uh, which is already has a, you know, uh, a formal secret service, the special operations executive. Okay, and the special uh, special services intelligence units, and they give this guy Garland Williams their manuals, training manuals, and organizational manuals, which he brings back to the United States, and he sets up the OSS training camps, in which is now Camp David uh, in Virginia, and which is Camp Perry in Virginia, which becomes the CIA's training base, and this federal narcotic agent sets these things up because. The OSS uh, officers who are beginning to go overseas and conduct, you know, espionage operations in areas that are denied to the United States military have to do so uh, undercover. And they have to deal with the criminal underworld and the nations that they're going to be slipping into and forming militias to work against the Japanese and the communists all over the world. Okay. And it's, it's basically based on how federal narcotic agents operate. And it's federal narcotic agents that teach these guys how to work with the criminal organizations 
around, uh, around the world, how to recruit informants, how to deal with mercenaries who do traffic in narcotics, who, who are counterfeiters, who know how to bust in and, and steal documents. Because these are the, you know, the federal narcotic agents don't just run across. So you write about this. You know, drug smugglers, they run across arms traffickers, you know, because all the time. And they know, they know the ins and outs of the, arm tra- the international arms tra- trafficking. And so, you know, wherever you have uh, international narcotics smuggling, you have drug smuggling. The two things go together. So this whole OSS is basically set up as the first organized crime unit of the United States government to deal with criminal organizations around the world and in the United States in order to protect criminal organizations that work with the United States government around the world. And not only does the OSS start working with criminal organizations around the world to subvert um, German occupation forces, you know, to create underground resistances, you know, and underground, the underground resistance in, in, in France, you know, is a criminal organization as far as the Germans concerned, you know, and the U.S. is there helping them, bringing drugs, uh, guns in for them. You have to learn how to be, to, to be a, smile, a, a, a spy, the same techniques that a criminal uses, how to create a false, false passport, how to smuggle drugs, how to smuggle these things. So they actually need not only federal narcotic agents to help them, they need professional criminals to help them. And, and these people become employees of the OSS, just like they're employees of the CIA today, because you're working in foreign countries that will not allow you in, or you're trying to subvert countries that you're allied with, and, but you can't be known, so you have to rely on the criminal underworld in these, in these countries. And so, you know, uh, the OSS is the first organized crime branch in the United States, and it evolves into the CIA. And it's basically based on how federal narcotic agents operate. And they are the ones that form it. And they supply, they, they uh, support Chiang Kai-shek throughout the war. They, you know, I mean, and, and they start... Um, uh, actually importing, for example, the OSS um, operates in Burma and uh, fighting the Japanese with hill tribes. I mean, these are you know, very primitive people. Slash and burn economies, okay? Um, uh, you know, they're not literate. They, they, you know, they believe in the spirit world. You know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the kind of people that would be a National Geographic as, you know, a tribe that nobody ever knew existed. And the OSS is dealing with these people. And the only way they'll work for the OSS is if the OSS gives them opium. They have an opium culture, but they can't get to their fields because the Japanese have them. So the OSS and the military start shipping opium from Iran, which is a U.S. ally. Ally, and they actually, uh, a guy named Kim Roosevelt, who's a direct descendant of Teddy Roosevelt and a relative of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wrote a book about visiting the main opium processing plant in Tehran and finding finding an American in charge of it. Okay, and producing all, you know, they took over the Turkey's, uh, Iran's opium business in World War II. And they, they, they made sure that uh, they set up their own bank for laundering drug money called the Bank Serifis. 
And, and um, the military and the OSS laundered the drug money and sent it up to Burma and around the world to make sure that their, their drug smuggling allies had enough opium to sell on the black market through the war. Okay, and all this stuff, all of these operations ingrain this guy, Harry Anslinger, who's the commissioner of the Bureau of Narcotics, makes him one of the foundation stones of the modern national security state. Okay, and there's no UN, there's no more League of Nations. The United States actually imports, starting around 1938, up until the beginning of the, the um, uh, World War II, opium from around the world and stored it in a Fort Knox. Opium is a strategic resource. Doctors need it to create opium, I mean, to create morphine and heroin to treat all the soldiers who are being blown to bits, okay? But the United States is not an opium-producing country. So you got to get it from somewhere around the world. So, so Anslinger, you know, starts making sure that, that he has opium uh, sources in Turkey and Iran so that they can import, uh, uh, bring as much opium to the, the United States stored in, uh, in Fort Knox so the medical profession and the uh, manufacturers of uh, New York quinine, um, all the, you know, Eli and Willie, uh, Lily, the, the pharmaceutical industries have enough opium so that they can maintain the need to, uh, for opium, uh, for morphine and heroin here and all its derivatives here in the United States. So the United States becomes the world's repository of, of opium in World War II. And it's all overseen by this guy, Harry Anslinger, and it's all done so on behalf of the pharmaceutical and medical industries, which become, after World War II, known as Anslinger's Army. Along with the, along with the um, uh, evangelical racists who are uh, in Congress, and what, and, and after 1949, when the communists take over China, what's known as the China lobby in the United States, which uh, Chiang Kai-shek is, is moved to um, Taiwan, relocated to Taiwan with his soldiers, starting in 1947 where they actually massacre about 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 people and take over the country, which you'll never read about. Yeah. And they set up their drug smuggling operations out of Taiwan, courtesy of the CIA. And they have a, the Kuomintang uh, after World War II, totally in secret, sets up an army of uh, a Kuomintang army that couldn't be evacuated to Taiwan and they put them in Burma, where the same OSS officers who worked with the Burmese in World War II now work with this uh, CIA officers, this Kuomintang Party, which conducts operations into communist China on behalf of the CIA. And they let this, this Burmese army, uh, uh, the Kuomintang, um, support itself by trafficking narcotics. They grow opium there. And the CIA actually sends planes from Taiwan to Burma, where they deliver guns to the army and bring back uh, narcotics to Chiang Kai-shek, who, who through the OSS's uh, connections in the Sicilian and the, and, the, and the Corsican underworld now start trafficking it worldwide. So the CIA, by the end of World War II, is the world's biggest drug trafficker. 
And so, the, and it's all done in secret. Right. So the refinement of the opium to heroin, that would be the Corsican mafia. Yeah, the Corsican mafia, which was a, which there was a, you know, um, a very uh, hardcore fascist faction, you know, that that collaborated with the Nazis. And that's the faction that the CIA recruits. And they, they, um, uh, there's also a, a socialist uh, group of Corsicans, uh, the Guarani family, and um, uh, they sort of work with the CIA. You know, they don't want communism, so they, they help squash the communists, but they're still socialists. You know, so there's all these political factions that the CIA starts dealing with. The C- it's very complex. It is complex, and one of the things that's been very interesting to me that I've only recently learned is the degree to which something like the World Anti-Communist League or the KMT or these certain right-wing Christian groups yeah. or even yeah. the Reverend... The yeah, Reverend. They're all local to where they are. Like the Kuomintang doesn't have anything really... You know, they have, a, they have a, um, outposts in Mexico which are which they set up and they start smuggling narcotics from Mexico uh, you know it's easier to smuggle drugs into Mexico than the United States so after it actually starts during World War II lucky uh, uh, Meyer Lansky starts working with uh, Kumantong to make sure that drugs come into Mexico so that the mafia can get some drugs up into the United States, you know, and, and, and uh, well, it's very easy to bribe the Mexican army and politicians and um, uh, customs agents, you know, so certain amount of heroin has come through, but that's, that's actually a network that Kumantong, uh, Meyer Lansky network out of Mexico is actually protected by the CIA. And so I guess my earlier question is, is it fair to say that far-right anti-communist elements will have their hands in this kind of drug dealing far more than the left. The drug dealing has always been, and organized crime politically has always been more to the far right. I'm sorry. Slow it down. Sit up and go, be a little more. You know, I, I couldn't hear the question. It's okay. Is it fair to say that in the post-war period, mo- much of the, the political alliances of the drug dealers were always anti-communist, oh, absolutely. even fascist. Yes, oh, absolutely. Oh, let me give you an example. Okay. Um, at the end of World War II, uh, the, United, you know, the communists uh, had basically defeated um, the Nazis in France, the, the underworld, the underground, the la resistance was, was not formed of fascists. The fascists were aligned with the Germans, okay? And, and the, the people who were fighting them were the communists. And so the communists come to power in France at the end of World War II. And, you know, so, so um, uh, and, and um, the CIA has to try to um, minimize their 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 um, 
their influence. So that's why they align with democratic socialists, okay, to try to get rid of the hardcore communists, okay. But at the same time, the Corsican and French underworld characters who had collaborated with the Germans, I mean, it's estimated that like 500,000 of these people were killed by pissed off French at the end of World War II. Nobody counted, you know, kept any statistics on it. But if you lived in a little village in France and the, you know, the Nazis came in and the, the SS and they, they wiped out, you know, a hundred people in your village and the villagers knew who the informants were. Well, there was no trial. You know, in the days after World War II, these people were dealt with summarily, and nobody kept any 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 statistics about it. Okay, this is what happens. You know, it, after a war is over, uh, the local people take matters into their own their own hands. So a lot of these collaborators wanted to get the hell out of France. The the fascists who would collaborate with the Germans, just like, and just like the, the CIA brought through its Operation Paperclip, a lot of Nazis into the United States, you know, they, need, they wanted the, the German scientists, they wanted people to run, who had been in the German military and their intelligence agency to run operations against the Soviets, so they kept all these people. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of, of Nazis are being recycled at the end of World War II into the CIA, working for the CIA, um, being given homes at like Werner von Braun in the United States to develop our missile system. They're being sent to South America through rat lines where they, they you know, are used by the CIA um, as a clandestine army against socialists and communists. I mean, there's this whole network set up all around the world. It's all very well documented. I mean, everybody knows about it. Uh, but in, in one particular instance, the CIA gives a guy, um, one of these fascist guys, they, they need help with their drug business in the Far East, okay, um, out of Thailand, into, into um, Laos, out of Laos, into South Vietnam, through that area. So they buy this guy two airplanes, you know, a collaborator, fascist collaborator. And, and, and he sets up an airline in Laos, okay, to move heroin from the, um, from the Golden Triangle area, which is out in the, where the border of Burma and Thailand and Laos are, okay, which is uh, an epicenter of the um, illegal drug trade, you know, in that area. And he starts flying drugs out of there, okay. And pretty soon he's got a couple, you know, he's making a lot of money, so he's got a couple more planes, and he starts hiring a lot of old Corsicans who were fascists and, you know, home away from home. And these guys have their connections in Bangkok, and those connections go to the United States Mafia. They have connects. they start up, this airline starts flying all over Southeast Asia and setting up contacts everywhere it goes. And uh, um, nowadays, it's one of the two major French airlines. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was put in business by the CIA. And, and to this day, uh, if it, the CIA needs a favor, they can go to this airline. And it, because it doesn't fall under United States government 
uh, law enforcement purview. The CIA can use it to move guns or arms or whatever it wants all around the world. Okay, so this is the way the CIA starts setting up after World War II its international criminal organization through foreign governments, foreign nationals. And when they say, well, no CIA officer was actually transporting 100 kilograms of, of heroin, they're pretty much right because they got all these foreign nationals to do, which they set up in business. So they don't have to. They're the case officer of these people. And it's all absolutely secret. And just like Harry Anslinger kept it quiet in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, the same system exists nowadays throughout the world. And, and the grist for this mill is the addict. It has not changed at all. They are the people that are vilified. They are the people that are, are down at the very bottom of the food chain. They're dispensable. They're, you can use them and throw them out. You can use them for propaganda purposes. On and on and on. It's, it, it hasn't changed. I live, uh, and this will be the last thing I'll say for today, because I'm running out of steam. But I live in a town called Long Meadow, Massachusetts. And um, uh, the city, which is five minutes away from me, is called Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. And I think it's like 300,000 people. And uh, I was going to a health club and um, about 10 years ago. I can't remember, maybe it was 15 years ago. And, and um, I made friends with the um, uh, janitor at this health club. Okay, and we would go out drinking beer, shooting pool, smoking a little pot, you know, having a good time. And uh, we became friends. And he, this was after my book, The Strength of the Wolf, had come out. And he knew I was a writer. You know, I mean, he was just a janitor, I'm a writer, you know, I mean, and, and it never really came up. But one time, he, you know, I mean, I'm not that way. And, you know, I've got friends all over the place. And, and one day he says to me, well, my father was actually involved in the, was actually uh, um, uh, an officer uh, in the Springfield Narcotics Squad. And he told me that they lent the Italian mafia, bring drugs into Springfield, and the Italian mafioso guys who brought it up from the Genovese family down in New York City would then tell the Springfield Narcotics Squad the Puerto Rican and black distributors that who they were giving it to. And then the narcotic squad could do the same thing that was done back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And it's still done all over today. They could bust the blacks and the Puerto Ricans and they would make cases because they knew who the drugs were going to. And it reinforced all the stereotypes that, uh, you know, uh, allow conservative politicians to stay in power. And, and it, it, it fuels the whole prison industry and it fuels the whole drug law enforcement industry. And it's the same um, pact with the devil that started back in the 1920s with the Kuomintang, which allows, in which law enforcement gets a, par, a piece of the uh, a pie and the politicians get a piece of the pie and the big time uh, uh, traffickers get a piece of the pie and their criminal organizations, which serve the vice needs of everybody, stays in place. You can now, you, you know, the same people use their drug money to, to create, uh, to, to put in place uh, 
strip jewels, which become a hub for, for selling narcotics. They, they're able to recycle their, their, their drug money into uh, uh, real estate, like Trump hotels. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty widely known among my circles that, you know, Trump, uh, the, when Trump was um, uh, hard up for cash, you know, Deutsche Bank came to the rescue and um, uh, uh, the CIA drug and organized crime money was funneled to them. You know, I mean, it's a, it, it works on a, on a big, on an international scale in terms of billions of dollars. It works on a lo local level, it, you know, more modestly, but the same thing. You know, uh, nowadays the casinos are legal. Back in the 50s and 60s, it was illegal gambling and everybody relied on the mafia. You know, so there was, you know, and half the people that were gambling were cops and politicians, you know. So, so the, whole, the whole network of our society is this devil's pact between the establishment, you know, the rich political elite, through politicians and law enforcement with organized crime, which maintains um, all the cultural and social uh, distinctions which, which fortify their suburban and um, uh, fortresses, you know, and, and keep the, 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 the poor poor and continues to, to uh, create disparities in um, uh, income, which only grow as time goes on. And the same myths have the same appeal to the same, you know, um, um, really ignorant, sort of uh, racist, sexist, uh, uh, Islamophobic people today as they ever did. Because those are the myths that America was built on. And that's what it means to be an American. It means to be a what? That's what it means to be what? Uh, that's what it means to be an American. Oh, yeah. yeah. To, bring, to leave these myths. Right. A, an American, a true American, believes these myths. That's that's how you identify a true American. One of those guys standing with, you know, uh, uh, an AR-16 on his hand and state house steps. You know, uh, the, the militia, armed militia, the two A guys. I mean, these are these are the people who say I'm a patriot. You know, ride around with their Harley with a flag on the back. You know, I mean, they have all they believe the myth. Okay, other people, and like for example, Black Lives Matter, no better. <laughs> you know, they know it's a myth because the system works better for the people who believe in the myth and can recite the myth and can, and can uh, um, that's how you get a job, you know, that's how you work your way up the corporate ladder. As well, you know, to the degree that you're indoctrinated with the myth and you, be and you believe it and you can recite it. Any guy, any guy, any one of those DH, Department of Homeland Security guys in, in Portland right now believes the myth. You know, and that's how they get a job in the Department of Homeland Security. They, they believe it and they can recite it. Yeah. So anyway, hopefully that puts some perspective of what's going on at, um, for, your, for your audience. And oh, it, it was fantastic. Invaluable. I have one question, though. How is your work received in the academy? How is what? Your writing received oh. in the academy. Well, <laughs> you know, it helped when the internet was sort of born in 2000. You know, um, uh, 
Hollywood producers are always interested in the strength of the wolf. You know, they, there's a lot of, I interviewed hundreds of federal narcotic agents. You know, I interviewed the guy that made Joe Valachi. You know, I mean, there's a, tons of really good stories. Um, uh, you know, uh, true crime stories. So I'm always getting offers for the book. Nobody's made it into, a, you know, a TV series or a movie yet. But they love it, you know, and, and people who read it love it. And, and people, you know, I've been in dozens of documentaries and stuff like that, um, you know, and told these, these things that I'm telling you pretty widely. But of course, there's no, there's no room in the mainstream or even places like, um, you know, the main uh, left magazines in the United States, like The Nation or Mother Jones, or, you know, none of them want to hear anything about CIA drug smuggling. You know, they want to, you know, they believe the myth, but with a sort of what, what the CIA calls compatible left, um, you know, uh, angle to it, but they believe the myths, you know, they, and, and, and so I'm kind of, um, I've been barred from, um, you know, the book doesn't get any uh, reviews in, in the mainstream media. And of course, the far right hates my guts, you know, for, you know, infiltrating the CIA and spilling its secret and for, and for infiltrating uh, federal drug law enforcement and, and spilling its secrets. So, you know, federal, the, the drug law enforcement community, except for a couple of guys who are mavericks, tend to hate my guts. You know, the CIA hates my guts. They had a file on me. Um, they arranged with the New York Times to, to sink my book, The Phoenix Program. You know, uh, I'm an enemy, I'm a subversive, uh, you know, enemy of the state and a subversive in that sense for revealing its secrets. But when people read my books who are just, you know, average Joe, they look. And they, everybody knows it rings true. Everybody knows it's true. Everybody who lives... And in an urban area knows that the cops are complicit. You know, I mean, this is, this is not stuff that's a secret. You know, it's only, you know, if you watch half the cop shows on TV, they're all rotten. You know, they're all up to their eyeballs and corruption. Everybody knows it's true. You just can't pass legislation that, uh, you know, or, or wage any corruption uh, against it because of police unions and, the, and, and, and law and order is the word of the day. So it's, you know, there's these countervailing myths that, that work against, you know, the prevailing myth, but they're relegated to entertainment. They're not relegated to, you know, they're, they're, not, they're, they're never like actually incorporated in policy or in, in the way that the government actually runs, you know, and, and, and that serves in what, you know, um, we call the spectacle that we live in. It, 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 it serves to keep the population pacified through the being able to, to fantasize through entertainment uh, what they can actually um, incorporate into their daily lives in some sort of meaningful way. What about academics? Oh, I, have, I can't actually say the words. <laughs> On you know on this video about academics, okay. <laughs> I mean they're the they're the propagators of the myths. You know they it's the Columbia School of Journalism that teaches you how to be a, a writer who propagates the myths. Yeah. You know so so uh, there are again there's a few mavericks here, but by and large academia is one of the 
four or five pillars of the establishment and the maintaining of the myths. You know, it's people from academia who go to work for Fox News, for MSNBC, for Mother Jones, for the nation. You know, I mean, they're the ones that get the good jobs because they know what to say. And they're taught in in college what to say and how to say it. And, and to the extent that they can regurgitate this myth and, and keep the, you know, help to keep the, the, the uh, uh, establishment in power, then they work their way up academia. They get tenure. They, get, um, they become the president of a university. You know, they get a job in the National Security Agency. They, you know, they, they go to work for, for Nixon or Biden or something like that as, a, as an authority, you know, or they become a talking head on the mainstream media. But again, you're, you know, the, there's only a few mavericks in, in academia that I have anything nice to say about. So that's it. I'm pooping out, man. Hey, thank you so very, very much. Well, you're very welcome. Would you send me a link when you have one? I will indeed. Okay. Enjoy your day. Okay. Bye-bye, peers. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.